what is your North Star is the better analogy. What should you be striving towards even if you know you're never going to get there? I totally admit we're never going to get to a place where race is viewed just like, just like hair color. But the question is, which direction should we be pushing with our ideas? Should we be pushing for a society where your race matters more and more? Where kids are coming home to their parents, looking at their parents for the first time as raced people? You know, I've heard stories where interracial kids come back to their parents after a day of school, you know, learning about white privilege or one of these new fatty concepts, look at their white dad and say, daddy, are you a bad person? Because I learned in school today that white people have been bad in history. That kind of thing I worry about because it is a regression into the tribalism that has characterized every multi-ethnic society throughout history. America is unique to some extent in that we, at least many of us, want to get past tribalism. Obviously, for most of our history, we have not lived up to these ideals. We've excluded immigrants on the basis of where they come from, out of notions of racial purity and superiority. But at our best, We are a nation that believes that it doesn't matter what color you are. You can come here. You can be successful. And if anyone tries to discriminate against you based on your race, we will protect you. And the rationale behind our protection will be precisely the aspirational colorblind ethic. And I think it's it's very unwise to throw that baby out with the bathwater. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I first crossed paths with Coleman at a conference that previous podcast guest Jonathan Haidt organized on promoting viewpoint diversity in academia. I hosted a breakfast panel discussion. Coleman spoke at an evening panel. He shared views that sounded reasonable and well-expressed, but I also knew social media mobs attacked him, though not often engaged with him. They just attacked. You hear about situations like that a lot. I wanted to bring someone on who had weathered such storms. Partly, you've heard me talking more about race on this podcast and on my blog. My next book covers race a lot, so I've had to practice developing my voice in an area I've seen people lose their careers. Coleman didn't. On the contrary, he recently spoke to the U.S. Congress on reparations, opposite another well-known writer on similar subjects with different views, Ta-Nehisi Coates. In our conversation, you'll hear his experience choosing to publicly take on subjects knowing that internet mobs might attack him, actually real-world mobs, after he spoke to Congress. You'll hear the inside story of what happened after the cameras went off. Also him being attacked, withstanding it, and coming out stronger for it. I asked his advice on my considering doing so. I hope that's useful for you as well. Not many people take on these challenges and emerge stronger for it. Here's Coleman Hughes. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Coleman Hughes. Coleman, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Glad to talk to you. And the reason I, I contacted you, besides the, what I was just saying about how we've our circles are kind of crisscrossing, is that I guess since, I think it's really since the riots and the marches 
that people have increasingly been talking to me about the overlap between environmental issues and race issues. And that led me to see that this is, this is probably an area where I should talk to people who have talked about it a lot more than I have. So I thought about contacting you. I suspect it's possible what you're doing is probably going to run into environmental issues too, as uh, environmental racism seems to come up and things like that. And not to pigeonhole you because there's a lot of things about you other than some of the things you've, I've read and seen you talk about. But I'd love to talk to you about some of these things. Yeah, let's do it. And I guess the first way that I was really curious, I want to go on a personal level that I've heard a lot about that you have been, you've spoken views that seemed, I'm sure people would see things one way, a lot of others would see things another way. But certainly I haven't heard you say anything that didn't seem reasonable to say. But then you've been on the receiving end of people coordinated, I don't know, what, what do you say, attacks or? Social media mobs, I guess. Social media mobs. Did yeah. you know that that was going to come? Was it a conscious decision to go there? Were you nervous about that happening or did it catch you by surprise? I would say, yeah, I was always nervous about it happening. And sometimes it caught me by surprise and sometimes I knew it was coming. When you knew it was coming, because I'm kind of nervous about going, stepping into certain areas and I want to learn from your experience if that's, if that's not too selfish of me. But on the times when you knew it was coming, was it a difficult decision to say, I'm guessing that it was something like, I have something that I believe and I, I believe it's worth sharing. I know I'm going to get attacked, but I will share it anyway. Or maybe it was a different process. Was it something like that or was it different? No, it was exactly that. I think this was probably the sharpest when I testified before Congress against reparations for descendants of American slavery. You know, you don't know how bad it's going to be, whether it's going to be one day of a few thousand people hating you or a week of getting death threats or something like that. But yeah, you know, you feel like you have something to say and that it matters to you and that not very many people are willing to say it. And you anticipate regretting uh, holding your tongue out of fear. That's the main thing that drives me is I, I dread the idea of regretting not speaking when I had a unique opportunity to. So rather than feel that regret, I take the other horn of the dilemma, which is the emotional pain and isolation that, you know, the feeling of isolation that can come with being on the receiving end of what looks like thousands of people who don't know you saying very mean things about you. And is what happens better, worse, different than you expect? Is, it, is there a juicy trends there? Were you more worried than you had to be or less? I think properly worried. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly no joke to be on the wrong side of a social media mob. You can lose friends as a result of it. You can get canceled dates. Uh, these are all things that have happened and they suck. At the same time, you know, I, I think a great piece of advice that I heard is that nothing is ever as bad or as good as it seems in the moment that it's happening. I found that to be true. Uh, so, you know, a couple months later, a couple months after the fact, or a year after the fact, you might be very happy that you suffered through the mobbing because the costs of doing it are concentrated right in the moment of cancellation. But the benefits of having done it might be distributed over the rest of your life. I'm hearing no regrets. And that's even anticipated. You don't know what the positives will be. You know what the negatives have been so far. So even so far, you, you would do it again. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't undo it if I had a time issue. I appreciate this this insight or this uh, sharing your experience. It, has it led to you changing your thoughts in ways that you didn't expect, or does it did it reinforce how you think? Does it evolve you as a person? Yeah, I think so. For me, that that particular example of reparations in Congress, it allowed me to have many, many more conversations with different kinds of people about that issue. And I would say my my views evolved, but didn't fundamentally change. I got a better understanding of what is driving people to push for reparations, for example. And you know, if I hadn't gone into Congress, I might not have gotten so many opportunities to talk to lots of different people about it. So in that sense, it also was an education for me. Did you talk to Tanisi or was it the videos that I saw, like you're sitting but not talking to each other? Do you actually talk afterward or? No. Uh, yeah, we, we just introduced briefly before, but afterwards, this isn't caught on video, but, you know, there was, you know, a crowd of people Game of Thrones style shaming me as I walked out of the room. I heard you mention this. Yeah. And there were, you know, probably over a hundred people in that room. And frankly, I was scared. I knew the majority of them hated me more than anyone else in the room. And it was a very chaotic room. So I was mostly concerned with getting out safely. And I also had to pee like a racehorse. <laughs> so I, 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 was not, I was not eager to stick around to say hi to anybody. When you, you said that you, it gave you a chance to talk to people and understand what motivates them and also this seething rage, I'm not sure what to call it, for them to, to do the Game of Thrones style stuff. What, did you, what insight did you get? What, what's motivating them? Mm, I think at bottom, what's motivating them is, is the same thing that's motivating. And I don't know if you know any people like this in your life, but the same thing that, that's motivating someone who in their 50s goes to therapy because of something that happened to them when they were three, which they have attributed all of their life's misery to. And they go to therapy in their 50s with the desire to sort out the thing that happened when they were three years old in the hopes that if they figure out the Rubik's Cube of their distant past, everything will click into alignment in the present. That impulse is the deepest impulse, I think, behind reparations. The idea that in order to go forward, we have to have a deep reckoning about our distant past. I thought you were going to say something also more personal that the, I mean, some of your articles, you, you write about how people, they get notoriety or they get their platform raises by taking certain positions. Maybe that was their intent, maybe it wasn't, but it happened anyway. And it feels like there are certain things that you can make a name for yourself on by taking certain positions. And I thought, that, I thought you were going to get something like that. There was a personal uh, gain to be had by some people. I wouldn't say that because, you know, you could just as easily say that about me. Have I not personally gained from taking a very public stance against reparations? Probably my Twitter followers went up, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think to say someone is doing something for personal gain without any clear evidence that there was like a quid pro quo, like that they don't really believe what they're doing, but they're just doing it for money. How do you separate that out from the instances where a person is doing something for principled reason, principled reasons, but also happens to gain from it? Yeah, I can't say. I was just speculating. I'm also very. I'm always very 
hesitant to accuse people of that unless it's unless there's clear evidence of it. And your description of having to solve things, it, in, I'm going to describe to you a model that I have, a mental model for in leadership that I find very useful, is that there's the dandelion model and the burning building model. And the dandelion model says that if you have a problem, if you, if you just take off the dandelion but don't get it at the root, then it'll grow back. And so you really sometimes have to get to the root of a problem. And I spent most of my life thinking everything was dandelion problem. And then I learned the burning building model, which sometimes it's, well, it says if you're in a burning building, you don't necessarily know, have, to, have to know the cause of the, of the fire. Just get out of the building. Mm. And sometimes actually figuring out where the fire came from is easier after you're outside and you're not feeling the stress of it. Mm. And you can say, oh, it started from over there, which you wouldn't be able to see while you're feeling the struggle or the, the mess. And it feels like you're describing a dandelion model. And now I don't know if this, how, how well this applies, but I can tell you that when I first heard the burning building model, I thought, well, rarely will that work, but really you got to get to the root. And the more, more and more things in life, I find the burning building model, you know, you get out, you fix the problem. And then oftentimes the root is more clear after you've solved the experience of the problem. Mm. And I hadn't thought about this when I was reading your stuff, but it feels like, I feel like what you described is like a dandelion model approach. We have to get to the root of this. No. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. I really love that analogy and I I might have to steal that from you. (laughs) Yeah. I I think who uh, came up with that, by the way, do you know? Me. I didn't come up with those models, but I came up with those names. Oh, those names. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to frame it. The burning building one, I, as far as I know, I came up with it, but I've I've heard it like in Buddhism, like if you get, if you get an arrow in you, you don't have to know where the arrow came from. Mm. And so, but I'd already been calling it burning building. So I stuck with that. Right. Yeah. The Buddhist parable about the, the guy who has an arrow in his chest and is asking who made the arrow and who yeah. made the, yeah, where the wood comes from and whatnot. Yeah. He, he has his priorities backwards is the, it, yeah. no, I think that's, that's an excellent analogy for the way, the difference between how I view, you know, many of the social ills surrounding racial inequality that we face and how many people on the far left in the racial, the modern anti-racist movement view it. I view it as, so if we're talking about incarceration, why are so many black people in prison? Why is the crime rate so high? Why is homicide the leading cause of death for young black men? All of these problems, I take a burning building approach to, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I'm interested in what works. And I think what works is not obviously given by a deep study of history. I could read every single book that exists on American slavery. And that would not get me one iota closer to knowing how to fix a broken public school Mm -hmm. in an inner city. That's just a fact. And that's a large part of what was motivating me on the topic of reparations. A lot of what they feel is there, there needs to be a deep reckoning with the root causes of these issues going back to 1619. That's what the New York Times' 1619 project is all about. Mm-hmm. How does that move the ball for people alive today? To what end? They, you know, many people seem to take it as a given that we can't move forward until we have a deep inquiry into the past. One, I would argue we've already had a, one of the deepest inquiries into the past that any country has ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, there are no examples of slavery that have been more studied than America between the 17th and 19th centuries, despite the fact that there have been 
the slaves in America don't even make up just a fraction of the total number of slaves that have existed throughout recorded human history. Yeah, you got me into Orlando Patterson. <laughs> yeah. Slavery and Social Death is his thick, mm. thick book that has a database at the back of it chronicling every known example of slavery in recorded history. And you will notice America is one entry on that list of mm. over 50 or so examples, uh, most of which people haven't even heard of, don't care of, and uh, will never learn of. So I'm curious why people think that getting to the root of the issue will will somehow cause a national reckoning that will cause us to solve everything or, or even get closer to solutions. I, I don't think it will do that at all. Yeah, it, it does. This is a question that I ask in different contexts, but what if the problem were solved? Would we need to do all that? I don't know. I mean, it might, it might actually make it easier. It might make it unnecessary. I mean, if there has been a reckoning, but it hasn't solved the problem, if we do solve the problem, well, then it's solved. But now, yeah. now me saying that, I can imagine someone being like, Joshua Spodek said, and I, I didn't you know, pay attention word to word, like word for word for what I just said. Joshua Spodek thinks the problem can just be solved like a burning building. Do you get worried about things like that? Yeah. Um, I always try to speak in a way so that such that I can't be taken out of context or such that it's hard for people who are motivated to destroy my reputation to take me out of context. In this day and age, that's, you know, half of what it means to be a good writer is to all, you know, to inoculate yourself against being canceled with a single quote while at the same time not being so long-winded and tedious that you're impossible to read or listen to. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, this is what I'm like preparing. I'm stealing myself to dive into. And I appreciate your sharing that the not regretting and that it helps you evolve. Maybe this is too broad a question, but what's the passion? I, I mean, I can guess at a lot of things of what, what motivates you to take these risks. I mean, you said that you have, there's something that you want to say. If you miss the opportunity, you might not like it, but, or you might regret it. But is there something driving you? I haven't gone back too far in your history of what's online. But I'm curious if there's a passion driving you that, that it's easy to put your finger on that got you started or that keeps you going. I think the country is driving right past a very important concept, waving to it and just putting it in the rearview mirror. And that very important concept is that race is skin deep. We are all of the same human race and that we should strive to treat skin color and race as a fundamentally unimportant characteristic when we're talking about morality, right and wrong, what issues we should care about, and politics. I think that is the, the central ideal around which the civil rights movement was organized. And I think we abandoned that at our own peril. The anti-racist movement has abandoned the aspirational colorblindness that characterized the civil rights movement. And I think that's a huge mistake. This sounds very similar to what Sam Harris says. And I feel like maybe you guys, well, I heard you guys talking about this to some degree. I mean, he would say that skin color should go the way of eye color or hair color, that no one really keeps track of how many, do we have the equal or proportional representation of, of people with black hair and people with red hair and people with blonde hair in this company. Mm-hmm. And hopefully one day we'll be able to say that about skin color as well. Mm-hmm. And whatever, I mean, lots of other divisions. Mm-hmm. Is that, do I read you right? That that's something that's, missing that would be a laudable goal that we'd like to reach 
Yes. And somehow we were about to reach and then have diverted. Yeah. I think that one always, you always want to have more moral clarity about what is your load star? What is your, your, I suppose, North star is the better analogy. You know, what should you be striving towards, even if you know you're never going to get there? And I totally admit we're never going to get to a place where race is viewed just like, just like hair color. But the question is, which direction should we be pushing with our ideas? Should we be pushing for a society where your race matters more and more, where, you know, kids are coming home to their parents and looking at their parents for the first time as raced people? You know, I've heard stories where, you know, interracial kids come back to their parents after a day of school, you know, learning about white privilege or one of these new fatty concepts mm-hmm. and look at their white dad and say, daddy, are you a bad person? Cause I learned in school today that white people have been bad in history. You know, that kind of thing I worry about because it is a regression into the tribalism that has characterized every multi-ethnic society throughout history. America is unique to some extent in that we, at least many of us, want to get past tribalism. We, we obviously, for most of our history, we have not lived up to these ideals. We've excluded immigrants on the basis of where they come from, out of notions of racial you know, purity and superiority. But at our best, we are a nation that believes that it doesn't matter what color you are, you can come here, you can be successful, and if anyone tries to discriminate against you based on your race, we will protect you. And the rationale behind our protection will be precisely the aspirational colorblind ethic. And I think it's, it's very unwise to throw that baby out with the bathwater. I'm reading a couple of things that I, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised at. I feel a fair amount of patriotism in what you're saying, something very pro-American. I mean, maybe it's because there's such big problems here. Yeah, I have a certain degree of patriotism, but it's not a blind patriotism. Mm-hmm. I think there are two kinds of people. There are people who compare America to the imaginary utopia in their brain and find America to be lacking by comparison. They find America to be horribly racist and sexist and misogynist and transphobic and homophobic relative to what they imagine it should be. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who compare America to what actually exists, namely the rest of the world, and find it to be, on balance, pretty damn good, mm-hmm. despite its flaws, despite certain ways in which it is trailing the pack. There are certain ways in which we're leading the pack as well. I would submit people who hate America to explain why it is the number one destination for black and brown migrants around the world. That's a fact that on its face challenges the idea that America is fundamentally systemically racist. Mm -hmm. Why are all the Nigerian and Jamaican and Haitian and Ghanaian immigrants coming here, you know, even before Europe? What is it? We must be doing something right relative to other parts of the world. And yes, a certain type of person will say, oh, well, it's because America was colonial and stole all the wealth and 
So people naturally want to come here for the economic opportunity. That's all based on slavery and colonialism. And I'm sorry, it's not. That's not what it's based on. You know, study more examples of slavery and colonialism from the past 10,000 years and ask yourself why it is that certain countries have gotten wealthy and others, others haven't. The causes of that have very little, if anything, to do with the amount of colonialism and slavery they practiced. So I guess I can sound patriotic, but it's, it's only because I feel I'm comparing America to the alternatives. Where does America sit among the you know, over 100 countries in the world? Objectively, as, as a desirable place to live, even as a Black person, it ranks in the top, <laughs> has to rank in the top 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not, and that's not my opinion. That is a fact based on where actual people choose to actually live. Mm-hmm. That's not a notion in my head. So I'm trying to account for that reality when I speak about this country. It's not out of some sense of jingoistic pride. So I'm reading that there's these different views and some pe- it feels like at least recognize that America's got some things going for it. Like at least recognize it. At least there are problems. If I read you right, there is no, we're not likely going to reach a utopia where everyone's just happy all the time or what, I'm not sure what a utopia would be, but there's a huge plurality of voices here, probably more than most places. And that means that probably one of the best outcomes we can hope for is where there's going to be lots of disagreement. No two people are going to have exactly the same values and therefore people are going to disagree on things. So, but we don't want to silence them, but we don't want to just completely dismiss that like a really good outcome is where there's a lot of, if I read you right, something if I'm getting it, is that people talking to each other, people not talking past each other, at each other, and trying to reach some understanding. But there's a lot of people out there who are not trying to do that. And I feel like you, maybe you're trying to deflate them a bit or to like, well, I was just watching the video of, of, I don't know the guy's name. Uh, he walked through the gates of Barnard and the security guards asked for his ID. And I read what you wrote before watching the video. Alexander McNabb, Alexander McNabb, yeah. McNabb. Mm-hmm. I first read your piece, then watched the video. And I think at the end of your piece, you said you described it as histrionics or something like that, like overacting, something like that. And I thought, oh yeah, right. And then I watched. And I was like, hmm, that that doesn't sound like that sounds like an apt description. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he wanted to show the problems. And then I read a couple of his pieces in spec. Mm-hmm. And my read is, you're trying to say, yeah, there are problems. I'm not trying to take away from that. But let's not only dwell on the problems. Let's look at, let's communicate. Let's recognize what is going well. Or, but also, what there are other problems that aren't necessarily race related. They're economic, and let's work on those. I'm not sure if I'm getting it. I think a little bit closer to to my point would be and this would be perfectly clear to people on the left if it were if we were talking about jihadist terror or communism it would be an older example when you have a problem a threat that you're facing that is real that is costing lives it is important that you keep the problem in proportion so that you do not overreact and punish innocent people this is why we look back on the era of mccarthyism with shame it's not that there were no communist spies in America. There were. It's that we got so crazily obsessed with the threat, the exaggerated threat of communist betrayal, that we ruined the lives of hundreds of people, if not more, by, with false accusations and mob justice. Again, it's not that jihadist terror wasn't a threat. And my God, 9-11. And Many, ele- many examples of 
you know, other domestic terror incidents. But does that mean we have to torture people at Guantanamo Bay, for example? Does it mean that the federal government should be tapping into everyone's cell phone? That's a genuine question to ask. And to, in order to answer that question, you have to try to have a realistic assessment of the size of the problem that isn't just informed by single anecdotes, but that is informed by data. You know, it, it, I think a lot of the people who, who would balk at the notion, balk at anyone who said, well, 55 unarmed, only 55 unarmed Americans got shot by the cops last year. 55, on the order of a lightning strike. Many people would balk at that argument because it would seem to downplay it. But if someone were to say, well, only 30 people got killed in jihadist terror attacks last year, say, that would go down smooth. But it's just both arguments are valid because people are prone historically to hysteria and to mass episodes of and moral panics, right? To moral panic. Like in the, there was a, there was literally a, a huge panic in this country about satanic daycares. Yeah. A few decades ago. In California, yeah. Yeah. Where like lots of normal people, otherwise normal people were worried that there were day, widespread daycares that were also satanic cults performing ritual child abuse. Okay, so if that can become an object of widespread panic, anything can. And certainly it's even, we're even more prone to panic about things where there is a kernel of truth to the panic, which is to say there's a, there is a problem to be solved. Like in in this case, there are racist cops. There is racism. There is, there are a lot of cops that aren't consciously racist, but are subtly racist. And when they approach a black suspect are a little more on edge. That's a fact. It's possible to spin that into a gigantic narrative that says America is systemically racist and then you end up firing the truck driver who makes a okay sign out, out his window as, because he's allegedly a white supremacist, as happened recently. And now a truck driver... Happened? Yes, it did. Look up uh, the article by Yasha Monk in The Atlantic where he talks about it. Okay. You know, or you end up... Yeah, I mean, there are countless examples I, I could name, but, you know, this kind of thing, it's not something you can just brush off by saying, well, oh, racism is the bigger issue, so we don't need to be concerned about overcorrecting that that is exactly the argument that we walked that that led us to walk into mccarthyism saying x is not an issue because y is bigger they're both issues and we can impose both of them it's possible to have moral clarity about the issue having reasonable discussions of what counts as racism and what is and what doesn't and to not have this break a few eggs to make an omelet approach to anti-racist politics. It sounds a lot like um, Jonathan Haidt often says, it's like, back off. Like We can all just kind of tone it down a bit. Is that an outcome of that that you'd like to see is, yeah, we'll talk about these things, but we're, it's not all heightened hysteria. And, and I guess also data-backed. Let's look at the numbers. Yeah. People don't think well when they're, when the temperature is, is at 90 degrees on their, on their emotions. Nobody does. So I I do think it's imperative that we lower the temperature. I mean, we know all of this from a few decades of Nobel Prize winning research on cognitive bias. It's not, you know, it's not like you're exempt from cognitive bias because you have a high IQ or whatever, you went to Harvard, 
You're not exempt from it because you're black or white or trans. We know that just every human being is to a different extent susceptible to confirmation bias, to seeking out information that proves their beliefs and ignoring information that doesn't. I'm not exempt. We're all not exempt. But we also know that people are better at overcoming it when they don't feel like their entire social standing is at stake on a given question. We're not going to get closer to the truth, closer to good research on the issue of police violence, police brutality, if people feel like their entire social standing, their entire image as a good person is dependent on getting a particular outcome. And that's what it feels like right now. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. The temperature is very high. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm also looking at it from the lens of, uh, I mean, I mean this, our conversation is going to be much more on leadership than on the environment. But what you're talking about, about how people look at things and how they see things the way they want to see and so forth. And I'm going to, a little less message to the listeners directly here is rewind what Coleman just said and listen to it from the perspective of environment as well, because it's, it's remarkably similar. And it's, mm. it's a challenge, you know, it's one thing to motivate people, I don't know, a leadership to, to motivate people when it's like the big game and it's halftime and the coach gives a talk to the team before going out for the second half. It's very different when you're based on data and it's scientific and you certainly in this area, and I feel like you as well have to be humble to the statistics. What is actually happening? There are actual numbers that we can get. And I'm sure you listened to Sam Harris's episode recently. I think it was called like Return from the Brink. Yes. I can't quote the numbers as he, I'm sure he had them written out in front of him and he prepared that. And also Steven Pinker also does the numbers. And it's remarkable how, I think this is, maybe that's what you were alluding to when you said, not just going by anecdote, that yeah, there, is, there are anecdotes and they're horrible. I mean, some of these images are just, they're, they're incredibly motivating to say the least, but they don't necessarily tell the story that the numbers do. And the numbers often tell a very different story. And I think people would react differently if they reacted to that. Yeah, I think um, I gave the example of jihadist terror. Uh, but another example is illegal immigrant committed crime. This is a huge issue for the American right wing. They very much care if an illegal immigrant, especially from Mexico or, or really anywhere south of the border, where our policies have been lax, if an illegal immigrant comes into the country and murders an American citizen. That is a very deep issue on the right. How often does it happen? That's an important question. Of course, it should, in an ideal world, I want zero Americans killed by illegal immigrants. I want zero Americans killed by jihadists. I want zero Americans killed by the police. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where on the jihadist front, we have enemies that want to see us suffer, irregardless of what we do. We have genuine challenges creating a border and an immigration policy that is cost-effective and ethical. 
And we have, you know, on the police, on the police front, we have the fact that we're a country with more guns than people. A cop gets shot almost every day and people reach into their waistbands in situations. And sometimes they pull out a gun to kill a cop and sometimes they're pulling out nothing and the cop doesn't always know which. And in addition to that, we have problems that are completely solvable, like with better policies and better training and whatnot. And we should do all of those things. But when we're understanding the size of a threat, you have to look at data or else you simply get carried away. You end up fighting a war that you shouldn't and causing massive collateral damage as a result. And that, that is what I'm worried. I'm worried that the, the war on racism that we are fighting right now, it might never end. I think it's hard to deny that the war on terror didn't have some costs that, that were disproportionate to the problem. The war on communism. You know, when, whenever you define something as the, the biggest problem on earth or the biggest problem facing us now, there is this very human and understandable tendency to have a scorched earth policy about fighting it. And we've come to regret this so many times in our history, and it's happening right now. And, you know, we love to look back on the people, the McCarthyist era or the war on terror and say, how could they have been so blind? How could they have walked into so many mistakes by defining this problem as, as so gargantuan? But we're doing the same thing. We are no better. And I think we would understand a lot of history much better if we, instead of imagining ourselves as the people who didn't make the mistake, imagine ourselves as the people who made the mistake, because that, that is who we are. So I think one of, one of my favorite Jordan Peterson things is when you think about the, the Holocaust, try at least once not imagining yourself as the hapless victim, but as the perpetrator. Imagine that you with your psychology that you think you know, is good. Imagine yourself being the prison guard and genuinely thinking, I'm capable of that. And then graph that, you know, consider for a moment the possibility that the war you're fighting is generating costs that you are blind to, even though it feels extremely noble. Yeah. Is that, I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing I lie in bed, not staying up, but like when I lie in bed, I try to think about things like that. Or you meditate too. So it's really uncomfortable to empathize with people you disagree with. Everyone talks about it. It's really uncomfortable to do, to put yourself in the mindset of someone one disagrees with. Mm-hmm which is what I think Jordan was talking about or giving, giving one an exercise in mm-hmm. to recognize the humanity and people that we disagree with very strongly. Um, the examples that you gave, what, the one for me is the, the, the domino theory that got us into Vietnam, one of the things. It's like, yeah. why would we think they were like dominoes? It's not obvious. Like, where did that come from? I, I've looked it up a little bit, but there's no real convincing. There's no one who's like, dominoes are like this and, and the, the nations in Southeast Asia are like that. And therefore it'll, it just, it's like, it seems kind of made up. I have to look more to find out what, what the progression of it actually. Mm-hmm. But of course, at the time, they didn't feel like this is made up. They feel like, oh, it's really hard. Once the dominoes start falling, it's really hard to keep them from falling. Mm. And how many things are we thinking, oh, if we better act right now. It also reminds me when um, my first company was after Columbia, we, it was going really well for a while and we were growing like crazy. And then the recession hit and it was 9-11 hit and it was falling apart. And suddenly every decision felt like the whole company is at stake. Mm. And if, if we make the wrong decision, we could lose everything. And tiny little differences just magnified into, we got into fights about a lot of different things. Even though mm. on the way up, we get, we disagree on much bigger things and things would resolve. 
that fear. So yeah, you mentioned earlier, if the temperature is very high, there's also something of, if we're full of fear of insecurity, insecurity can really drive people pretty strongly. I guess I, I hear from you a voice of reason, a voice of, of thoughtful reflection. And I think you're saying, you're not saying I have all the answers, but at least I'm looking at the problems. I, I guess you're looking more at from a burning building model of like, let's, what problems are there that we can solve and let's, let's do these things amidst people who are like trying to amp things up for whatever reason. Yes. I am a very solutions oriented person and how I think. And I always want to see evidence that a given you know, proposed solution will, will lead to what we think it will. You know, for example, defunding the police. I would like to see evidence that defunding the total budget of the city police department is significantly correlated with lower police brutality and without any other cost like higher crime. I don't see the link. There's no obvious link there to say shrinking the budget by 20% would lead to different behavior in precisely the, the kind of behavior that we want. It seems like a very crude approach. Like would, would defunding public schools lead to better teachers? I don't know. It's not, it's not at all clear to me. So I want to see evidence-based, logical and evidence-based you know, solutions to problems. And that's not, I'm seeing very little of that out of the most energetic quarters of the Black Lives Matter movement. All right. So I could go on for a lot of different things and I'd love to keep going on. I, I want to be sensitive to your time. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I really wanted to get talking about some things that I hadn't talked about. I appreciate your sharing these things. I'd like to close with, is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything to, to share that's come up recently or that, that's relevant? Yeah, I, I'll take any opportunity I can to discuss the problem of violent crime and homicide. There are pockets of the country where over 50% or up to 90% of homicides go unsolved. And most of those are Black neighborhoods. The leading cause of death for Black men in their 20s and early 30s is homicide. And that's not true for people of any other race. And the reason that matters is, is A, of course, the lives lost. B, the wider effects that violent crime has on a neighborhood. Stores have to charge higher prices to compensate for theft. Stores don't want to open there to begin with, which creates a cycle of unemployment and poverty. Uh, property values are low and they don't rise because it's not a desirable place for people to be. And therefore, wealth is hit hard. And there's remarkably little national attention on the issue. In the 80s, we organized around the issue of drunk driving. We had you know, Mothers Against Drunk Drive drunk driving cropped up and people donated tens of millions of dollars and we passed laws in Congress and there was energy at a local state and federal level to putting the best minds at work to solve or significantly reduce the problem of drunk driving. And it, it worked by all accounts. Why can't there be something like that with the issue of homicide? I think that's, it's a extremely overlooked issue and we have to find a way to talk about it in a way that isn't merely political or partisan. And it ought to be treated as a national emergency, and it's not. Now I can't help but ask a, a bit more here, because I, this seems to me very reasonable. This seems like this is a major problem. It's in the here and now. We can do something about it. There may be disagreements as to what, 
to do about it. And maybe a solution in one city would be different from a solution in another city, which might be different from a solution in some non-city. I would guess that people who say we must make reparations or we must understand where this is all coming from would say, they might say this is superficial. They might, I guess they would say you're just working on the dandelion. But when you would say what's, you, I read a piece you did on gentrification. I read a piece that you did on looking forward on the situation for black Americans. And you were saying it's not so bad. But I think also you were saying from what you just said now, I think you're trying to put together a platform or you're seeing something there that's like there's, there's a lot to build on to make neighborhoods safer, to make, this, to make these homicides go down. And we could do it. And there's a lot of other things that are distracting us from it. We'd probably be able to solve those things more efficiently or more effectively if we didn't have all the crime and then we didn't have all the high rates of uh, the, the higher costs and the, all the things that come with that. Yeah. It feels like there's this tragic, like at cross purposes, uh, like ships crossing the night. Not, it's not ships crossing the night because you know about each other. But my read is that you get where they're coming from, but I'm not sure that they get where you're coming from. I think that they, do people call you on the right a lot? Do people identify me as like on the right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Sometimes. Am I reading right that that's a mistaken identity uh, yeah. identification? I've, I've only voted once and it was for Hillary and I plan to vote for Biden um, for, for whatever that's worth. Although I can easily imagine a kind of Republican I would vote for. I don't particularly care about parties or liberal conservative. You're probably very mislabeled. I would guess you're mislabeled a lot. I haven't really looked at. Yeah. That sounds like a difficult position. But it's, I would hope that you, I have not really thought about how to lower homicides in black neighborhoods. I'm mostly worrying about the environment, which I think is relevant, but a different topic. It sounds like a pretty big challenge, but one that you have an insight on. And if I rewrite a strategy for to help work on, good luck. I don't know. What, thank you. I'm not sure what else to say. Thank you. Well, Coleman Hughes, thank you very much. Of course. My pleasure. Could you tell my personal interest how much I was trying to learn how to walk into a minefield? His experience helped me a lot to follow in his footsteps. I've taken steps past this conversation to speak more about race. A big challenge for me to do it publicly, it's very easy to do it in private, but to do it publicly, it's a little harder. It's crazy to think of how we live in times that everyone seems to recognize as suppressing open discussion. That is, our time seems like future historians should we not destroy ourselves I think we'll look back at us at a historic low in terms of open exchange of ideas, understanding, and listening. If we do destroy ourselves, our lack of open exchange probably will have contributed to not finding a solution to the environmental problems that would probably cause the destruction. Since then, I have to check if Coleman has started adopting the burning building versus dandelion models. We spoke a bit after about the new book that I'm working on, which touches on slavery. That's the minefield I'm considering entering. I hope to bring him back for future conversations. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.